0: G'day, and thanks for tuning in to Anything Goes. I'm your host Edwina Robertson, aka Eddie, and this show is brought to you with the intention of sharing interesting stories, experiences, and conversations, well, from mostly normal people. The following episode comes with a warning as it features adult themes around abusive relationships and discusses suicide. So it truly is best listened to away from small ears. If this episode is triggering to anyone, you may call Lifeline on 13 11 14 for support, or their services are available through chat or text. I also personally want to leave a note that for me, this interview with Helen was quite challenging particularly as an interviewer, as I was so worried I wouldn't do her story justice or give it the grace it deserves. Helen Waite, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have to be honest, I'm not nervous, but I've looked into your story a little bit and it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal journey where you have been and what you've been through and what you have created out of your life. But I think more so your story is such a deeply personal and for lack of a better word, inspiring story that talking to you and doing your story justice is where I feel nervous today because it it truly is incredible. So thank you for your time please just introduce yourself, let everyone know who is Helen Waite? Who are you? What do you do? What does your life look like? Thank you so much for having me. Um, This is my first
1: podcast, so um, I'm a little bit nervous as well, so we can be nervous together. I am Helen Waite. I am an occupational therapist. I am a single mum of three gorgeous boys who are my world. And I am the founder and franchisor of Australia's first and only occupational therapy franchise business, which I often refer to as my fourth child. They're deeply personal to me and I'm so passionate about it.
0: And how many franchises do you have currently within your business? I have 59
1: franchisees at the moment. Gone beyond my wildest dreams.
0: That is incredible. Congratulations to you, 59 franchises. And now the business is called Activity, which is A-C-T-I-V-O-T. Yes. And when did you start the business? I started activity back in
1: 2007. I had three children under five. My youngest was just seven weeks old and I needed to earn money
0: to pay the bills. As you do with a seven-week-old, you set up a whole new business. Wow. Yeah, even thinking of having to start up a business with two children already and then a a newborn, that just... a little bit intimidating to me. I couldn't even imagine how difficult that would be. But I guess tough times, call for tough measures if if you had bills to pay. So I appreciate that aspect of it too.
1: And being a mum was my primary goal. So I wanted to have something that I knew would give me that flexibility to be there for my children as well as earn money. And you just couldn't do that in a formal employment role within the current occupational
0: therapy landscape. How long did it take you from when you first started activity to having your first franchise? It was
1: about five years. So I set activity up in 2007 and then I started the whole franchise process in 2011 and took my first franchisee on in 2012.
0: I have a few friends who have franchised business models and you know the first couple of years they get they've had a couple and then you know in the last say like 18 months they've had you know 50 sign up so it's rapidly expanding have you found that within your business or has it been a steady growth or how has the the growth curve been for activity
1: I'd say it was very slow to start with but that was probably me because after I did my initial franchise um I had the breakdown of my marriage with the boy's father. So that really took its toll on me. And as soon as all of that was settled, I nearly died. I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune condition called idiopathic thrombocytopenia.
0: Oh, gee, that's a, that's a long name. It is. <laughs> what does that entail? What is that condition,
1: Basically, please? Basically, um, my immune system decided that my platelets were no good. And the platelets is the part of your blood that makes it clot. So my immune system was gobbling all of these up. In a normal person, your platelets are between 150 and 400. Anything below 100 is considered low. Below 50, they start to worry. Between 20 and 40, if someone were to come along and whack you on the back, you know, a mate, how are you going? You'd have an internal organ bleed. Between 10 and 20, you're at a risk of a spontaneous bleed, say in the bowels or the, or the brain or the lungs. And when I was diagnosed, my platelet level was five. They actually showed <gasps> below five. So I had the hematologist there basically saying to me, I don't need to rush you, but I need you to sign here like for consent because we need to start treatment or you're not going to make it. It was at Ashford and they'd said that they didn't have any beds and the hematologist basically said, well, an inter-hospital transfer is not an option find me a bed, we're starting treatment now. And that's when I'm like... Are you kidding me? I've been driving around all day. And it's like, no, you don't understand. You're not going to make it. So w- where are you at
0: with your health right now?
1: So I'm in remission from that one. It did take me a number of months. I was on incredibly high dose steroids for months and months and months. I was in hospital having treatment, still working on my business, my private practice, I will say that.
0: What, what year was
1: this, Helen? This was in beginning of 2015, January. So you'd been in
0: business for about eight years at that point?
1: yes. But I'd only been franchising for nearly two. So I had some franchisees on board and it was only me. Mm. There were no staff. So, yes, I was in hospital on my laptop having my drip in my arm (laughs)
0: and running my business. I thought I was crazy. But you do what you have to do. You do, but still you've got your youngest is around eight at that stage, Mm -hmm. seven or eight. So quite young still. Yes. You're a single mum by this stage. Yes. Wow. Can we just circle back a little bit, Helen? I think this will sort of lead us to the beginning of your journey. Who was Helen Waite? What, what was her childhood? What, where did you grow up? What did that look like? What was your family dynamic? How, how did that pan out for you?
1: It was a very challenging time. I am the youngest of four children. I have an older brother and then two sisters and then myself. My parents were both migrants. They both came from Holland. My dad came out when he was eighteen, and my mum was eight. My dad came by himself because he wanted to avoid the compulsory service over in Holland. And my mum came out with her parents, and she's the oldest of four siblings. So that was a you know, post-war migration for them. Did they know each other prior to coming out? No,
0: so they met here I in Australia.
1: out here on a blind date. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I would have to say that I don't think it was a very healthy relationship. I believe my mum's been abused her whole life and was continued to be abused by my father, very much in an emotional way. I think my father's um, quite the narcissist. He's never wrong. It's always his way or the highway. And... He has completely undermined her self esteem and her self confidence, and he did the same for us children. We were never allowed to have any friends. No one was ever allowed to really come to the house and visit. If a friend, you know, would ring the telephone once we got a telephone, it's like, how did they get your number? Tell them not to call again. Um, I never was allowed to go to birthday parties. Grooming was never considered important. You had to be covered from top to toe. There was no makeup, no hairspray, no jewelry. I wasn't even allowed to put my hair up in a ponytail. Like, yeah, so it made it really challenging. You weren't allowed to play sport if you had no social supports. And then as I got older, I wasn't even allowed to have a part time job because if you had financial means and social supports, you couldn't be controlled.
0: Mm. And the way very they, controlling,
1: very controlling, and the way they really used to control. Well, it worked for me. Um, I can't really talk for my siblings but I know that they've certainly been damaged by it all, is they would just withdraw emotional support. If you didn't do what they wanted you to do, then there would be no love, there would be no emotional support at all. You were on the outer and my parents always set us kids off against each other. There was always someone that was being picked on that was the black sheep until you fell into line and then it was someone else and it would just oscillate. And it was just so traumatic. It was just exhausting.
0: And this was your whole childhood or did
1: it start at a particular age? No, it was my whole childhood. It got worse. My father became an invalid pensioner quite young. I barely remember him going to work. And I guess once he stopped working, he started associating more with um, an older population. I mean, my parents were always devoutly religious. But once my father stopped working, he started to go to mass seven days a week.
0: Are your parents still alive? Yes, they are. Are they together still? Yeah, they
1: are together still. My mum would never, ever have the courage to leave him Um, and they're staunchly Catholic and in their mind you make your vows and you, you live with it. I mean my father made my mother believe that she wouldn't even have the skill or ability to drive a car. There is nothing wrong with my mother. She's got the cognitive capacity and the coordination. There is no reason why she shouldn't have been able to drive a car. But he took her out a couple of times, made her feel completely useless and hopeless and said, No, you don't have the skills to do that. She believed him.
0: Oh, that's terrifying, isn't it?
1: So, you know, like if I was in high school, I would come home with ninety-five percent on a maths test and my father would go, well, you know, that's that's fine, but where's the other five percent? So you'd come home with a hundred percent. that's fine. Why didn't you get bonus marks? Like nothing was ever good enough. And, you know, I was basically brought up being told I was fat and ugly and I was, I was overweight. And I think they purposely had us overweight and, you know, you weren't allowed to wear nice clothes um, and just constantly criticized and undermined to make you feel like you weren't good enough. And in my mind, that's not the role of a parent. The role of a parent is you know, that unconditional love, that strong attachment to make you feel like you can achieve anything and you can do anything. And you know that you're fully supported in the choices you make. But my father was very much the narcissist and it was all about control.
0: Mm. Did you have any kind of camaraderie with your siblings around, you know, were you all trying to band together to, you know, stay safe and, and have some kind of joy in your life or were you were you kind of isolated in terms of, you know, you're all dealing with this narcissistic behaviour and obviously parents who are very controlling, particularly your father. What was your relationship with your siblings growing up and, and what's it like today?
1: It ebbed and flowed. Like at times we got closer. But as soon as we could do that, and there's power in numbers, my father was quite clever in breaking those relationships apart and setting us off against each other. And we weren't strong enough, I guess, to do that. And then as we got older, we talked about not letting our parents ever get in the way. But I think it's innate in us in humans to always want that validation, to always want that affection from your parents. I think that is an innate part of us. And even then, he still had that pull on it. So I made a firm decision. Which I tried everything I could to fix relationships with my siblings. I tried everything I could to fix relationships with my parents. And it was just exhausting. I was just became so exhausted, so tired. I realised the problem was with them and not me. So I started to put some really firm boundaries in place, keeping in mind how difficult that was for me because As a child growing up, I wasn't allowed to have boundaries. Every time I'd try and put a boundary in place, my father would smash that down. That would be gone. Whether that boundary was around grooming or around wanting to do something or it didn't matter what it was. My father, if he knew that I liked something or I didn't like something, it would always be used against you. If he knew you liked something, it would get taken away as a punishment. If he knew you didn't like something, it would be just rammed down your throat you learned very, very quickly to hide your emotions and not show them what really mattered.
0: Did you have any other close relatives or like family of friends or anyone who you could feel safe and supported and, and nourished by? Was there anyone in your life or were you quite isolated and alone?
1: We were isolated. There were people like my grandmother who could see what was going on, but she'd been abused her you know, by her husband as well. Um, and my parents put firm boundaries in place and kept those grandparents away. Um, and rightfully so in some ways, because my, my grandfather tried to sexually abuse myself and my sisters and my mum knew that I I suspect that she had that kind of thing from him. I don't know. She's never actually told me, but, um, there has been assertions in that, in that way. So, um, they, tried to put boundaries in place there, which is a good thing. But then my grandma knew what was going on, but she was powerless to do something about it. And, you know, I'm really close with my dad's cousins and they could see what was going on, but they were powerless to do anything about it. Look, you know, they could see what was happening, but what can you do? And no one else was ever really allowed to come and visit or we never saw anyone on a regular basis. So From the outside looking in, we'd go to church on a Sunday and we were the perfect little family, you know, the four little children that would all be so polite and so meek and mild and sit and behave and not do anything wrong. Um, You know, you, you moved your head more than 45 degrees this way or more than 45 degrees that way and you'd have an elbow like, look, watch the front you know and if a friend behind you came and tapped on your shoulder say hi you turned around that was it you were in trouble for the rest of the day like
0: oh it's just i am actually my eyes are welling up here just to hear the, you know how much control he had over you mm. effectively yep. as a grown woman now with your own children Mm -hmm. uh, who are young adults. Where do you think your father's narcissism and behaviour came from? Did he have a a rough upbringing or or is that just his – his character? Was it environmental that he became that way or is it just nature? I think
1: mean, it's probably a bit of both. I think people have some tendencies in their personality. You know, Maybe it is a narcissistic personality disorder. I don't know. Um, there are a lot of people out there with personality disorders that don't get diagnosed. But I think certainly um, there was con- contributing factors in his upbringing, like I believe his father was probably very similar. Maybe his father had the same condition. His father used to abuse his mother, and as I understand, he was a real womaniser, didn't really look after the family. My dad's younger brother was so traumatised by it that he committed suicide. I'm very close with my auntie, my dad's sister, um, and she said it was a really challenging time, and she watched her mother go through a breakdown. So, I mean, her mother... And her father did separate, which was kind of unheard of back then. It was There were no choices for women, realistically. So she really took the hard road in leaving her husband. Um, but to be a single mum of four children in war times and just after war times was incredibly challenging. And I don't believe that my dad's father did the right thing by the family there either. So and I think that traumatised my father. And then my mum obviously had her traumatic upbringing, so that was probably something that brought them together. And my theory is is perhaps my father felt powerless, he couldn't do anything to fix things for his own mother, so when he met my mum, he's like, well, I can save you from your situation, which kind of did, but then continued to emotionally abuse her for the rest
0: of her life. So a lot of generational trauma yes. has, has been in your family on on both sides not just your father's side on your mother's side as well yep. and what's your relationship like with your parents today
1: i don't i don't have anything to do with them i can't i've just put firm boundaries there i can't fix them the last major conversation i had with my father he basically rang me to to tell me that um the reason that my marriage broke down was my fault i didn't go to church enough i didn't pray enough and you know i made my catholic vows it doesn't matter that i had the marriage annulled in the catholic church he doesn't believe in annulment um and i basically said to him i think we need to agree to disagree just you know for the sake of our relationship because you're never going to budge me and i know i'm never going to budge you you know and it's okay to have different opinions we just need to be respectful of each other and he basically said no i'm not prepared to do that so i basically said well until you're willing to apologise for your abominable behaviour and start to show me some basic respect, I can't have anything to do with you.
0: Assume you were aware that your childhood wasn't wasn't normal and wasn't sort of standard or you know, you, you weren't allowed to have your own friends and and live a relatively normal life, you know, and, and be a child. When you are a teenager, what were did you want to just escape? Did you want to go to uni? Did you still feel did you feel this level of you owed your parents something, or did you want to escape the environment that you're in and kind of rebel, or were you kind of in a in a mindset that you were like, I have to do what my parents want? You know, and maybe that was going to uni, or you know, what, what did that look like for you? Where w- Where was your mind at when, as you're growing up as a teenager? Yeah. Oh,
1: I definitely wanted to escape. I was very unhappy, but there was no escape route. There was nowhere to go. There was no one external that would support me. So if you don't have financial means, you don't have a social support network, and then you have lost all self-confidence and you actually believe that, you know, you're not good enough for anything, escape's not possible what do you do? You just can't. And I desperately wanted to fit in and I was, yeah, desperately unhappy. Um, I, being the youngest of four, I was always told that I was dumb and I was stupid and because, you know, developmentally, of course I was. Of course my brother, six years older, was going to be smarter than what I was. Not because he had higher IQ, he was in a different developmental place. Um, and the same with my sisters. So I think what really drove me through school, particularly at the end, was just to beat them to show them I'm not dumb. Almost proving it to myself. And so, when I went through Year Twelve, for instance, I did Maths one and two, Physics, Chemistry, and English. And um, my brother had gone through first, and he got a score of 354 out of 500, and he got into engineering, and that was considered great. And then my sister went through, and she. I only got 325, still passed, but enough to get into teaching. And um, she was poo-pooed because she didn't get as many points as my brother who got into engineering. And then my next sister went through and she got 361. And she was considered the professor because she was so smart because she beat my brother. And so my goal was to just beat them all. And when I went through, I got 410. And what was the response to that? Dead silence,
0: nothing, nothing at all, was no acknowledgement at all. So that would have been heartbreaking for you mm. who realistically, instead of being an independent kid trying to do the best you could do, you were competing against your own siblings for the validation from your parents, you did extremely well, you did better than all of them and then there was, there was no validation given. So that would have been very heartbreaking for you I can imagine. Yep.
1: Yeah. But then I didn't know what I wanted to do. So we actually, um, my father thought, well, you should work with people and perhaps healthcare, health science, helping people. So I chose all of the different health sciences courses in the SATAC guide and um, that's the South Australian Tertiary Admissions Guide. And we cut them all out and we put them into a hat and I drew five out of a hat and I put them down in order of the points and whatever I got into was what I was going to do and I got into occupational therapy.
0: Here we are. So it wasn't your choice. It wasn't. It wasn't something you really wanted to do. I
1: had no idea what I wanted to do, and I had no idea even what occupational therapy was. What do you do when you don't believe in yourself and you don't know? There was no Google. There was. I wasn't allowed to do work experience. Like there was nothing. There was an expectation you'd go to uni, though, because. You could better yourself, so
0: so it's funny though you weren't allowed to do work experience or have any kind of financial independence by getting part time work at school. But yes, you must go to university and you must get a you know a degree. And it's just such a like there's so many contradictory things and so many just just the control.
1: Yeah, I think my father regretted the fact that he never had an opportunity to continue on with schooling due to the poverty he grew up in with his his um, mother being a single mother and my mum was told by her father as she failed year nine she could quit school so she failed year nine and I think she's bitter to this day that she never got an education so I think at least that was something good that they encouraged us to get an education but even when I was at uni I had to be home at 6 p.m and if I had a late class my father would come and pick me up. That, yeah, you know, you've got 18-, 19-year-olds that go out for some drinks, say, at the uni bar and there's no way. No, you, you must be home, 6 o'clock, that's
0: it. As an 18-year-old onwards, did you ever drink? Not really, no. I,
1: I, no I'm not a big drinker even now. I can honestly say I've never been drunk in my life.
0: So you've gone to uni straight after school, like you didn't have a gap year or anything? No, no. And... You got into occupational therapy. How was that in terms of yet again trying to fit in or make friends or, you know, assimilate with your peers? Oh,
1: it was very challenging.
0: Most of the
1: peers there had gone to private girls' schools and I've come from poverty on welfare state schools, so there was already that. The way I looked and dressed, you know, no makeup, no hairspray, no fashionable clothing, etc. You stood out. And real no, no social skills development. Like my parents never had it, never saw the value in it, had no insight, no one to learn from, no one to role model from. So just didn't even have social skills. So it was very, very challenging.
0: Did you have any romantic interests at that age or? I did. There was one boy in
1: particular who I really liked. He was a bit older than me and I'd met him through a church youth group, but he was Anglican and obviously I was Catholic. As soon as my father realized about that all hell broke loose and I remember walking out the house one night just going for a walk to clear my head and I was just so angry because I really really liked this boy and the control from my parents and I ended up walking down towards our local church and one of the nuns who was like one of the pastoral workers there saw me walking so she stopped me and had a chat took me back home, told me to listen to my parents, but then she started encouraging me to join the convent. That's what I did. I ended up joining a convent. I had more freedom in the convent than I ever had at home. You hadn't finished university at that stage then? I did my first year of being a candidate in the convent when I did third year uni, and then I did a year of being a postulant in the convent when I did my final year of uni. I wasn't allowed to attend my graduation because I became a novice and I had a two-year novitiate where you were like cloistered from the world as you trained to become a nun.
0: Excuse me for my ignorancy. I don't know anything about being in a convent or being a nun. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems particularly in this day and age, it seems very a thing of the past. Uh, I've never crossed anyone who's been a nun before. So tell me, you lived within the convent do you get any paid? Is it like an organisation? How, do, how does it just, can you please explain some basics of how living in a convent works? No pay at all. There's different
1: types of convents. So these convent, like the different types of convents, you have some that are what are considered purely contemplative, like cloistered away. And you have others that are considered active, where they're out doing active works. You know, whether they be teachers or whether they be like running hospitals, etc. So the order that I was with, which was the Sisters of the Resurrection, was probably more on the cloistered side, but we still did some active works. So um, we had a childcare center, kindergarten on site. They had a primary school in Essendon. There were a couple that were working as teachers. So we also used to run a, like a retreat centre for people coming in wanting retreats. So we had lots and lots of rooms, beds, bathrooms. So once I finished uni when I was a novice, I was doing a lot of work on site, helping run the retreat centre, cleaning the place, maintaining the gardens. A typical day would be you'd be up at 5.36 o'clock, you'd be in chapel for um, meditation. And then you'd have morning prayers at about 6.30 and then you would have mass every morning at 7 o'clock and then you would go through to have breakfast and it was only at breakfast time that you were actually allowed to talk and then after breakfast it was silence again and if you were designated to the kitchen then you would be helping prepare lunch. The main meal was in the middle of the day so you're looking, you know, two-course hot meal for, you know, sort of 10 to 12 people so you'd be doing all of that cleaning up from breakfast plus cooking Cooking lunch lunch was always at midday and then after lunch you'd go back to chapel for prayers and then you would be doing more work in the afternoon and then you'd generally have a dinner around five or 5 30 and you'd go back to chapel for prayers and then there would be evening prayers again normally around nine o'clock and you might get to bed around 9 30 10 if you're lucky depends how much work there is to do and yeah it was a lot of a lot of manual labour, a lot of hard work. Mm. and I, So
0: that was for your board effectively? Yeah, basically, yeah.
1: And I was definitely, the, the, the next one up from me was more than twice my age. So I was definitely one of the younger ones there. They mo- made the most of the fact that I had a really strong work ethic. I mean, my father used to get us to do lots of manual labour as well. You know, we'd be digging trenches, smashing concrete, you know, loading trailers, lifting this.
0: And how do you think it made your parents feel you being... A nun. Oh,
1: they were so proud. They were so so proud. You know, hey everyone, look at us. You know, my daughter's becoming a nun. We've done this wonderful thing because they were just so caught up in all of that. So yeah, finally, I had that validation
0: from my parents. They mm. were so so proud. They were so happy for me. And upon reflection, how long were you in the convent for? I there for five years. What was your opinion of that time? That five years spent in the convent. I don't think I'd be the person I am today if I didn't have
1: that experience. I think it helped shape me as a person. But I also realised when I was in the convent, there was a lot of corruption as well. There was there was definitely a class system in the convent. If you were in the in-group, you would get the beautiful Mart thermal underwear. And if you weren't in the in-group, it was the basic Kmart stuff for you. Um and you can have a nice grapefruit and you can have a nice grapefruit and you can have nothing.
0: How many nuns were there when you were there in your particular convent? I think
1: there were about ten of us. People would sort of come and go. Um Okay. You know, they'd go to Essendon and Melbourne, we had one pass away, then we'd have one from Melbourne come and they'd do a trade or another one come from Poland, like so people would generally Come and go a bit, but there was a core there. There was a lot of ego. They didn't really live the way they professed to live. Like we had vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The vow of poverty, for instance, poverty is not not having things, poverty is not being attached to things, and poverty is sharing what you have. And I just didn't see them living that way. It was all give me, give me, give me, and I'll have this, and you can't have that. And um, you would see people in the local area who were you know, really struggling financially and they'd be giving the nuns $50 or $100. And then you see where the money would be spent and it would be wasted. I mean, I learned more about alcohol in the convent than I ever have in my whole entire life. They had the big alcohol cupboard. If you needed any alcohol for cooking for anything, you'd get it. But then the alcohol was there and they would do five, five course silver service dinners for dignitaries or priests that would come through. And, um, you know, some of the nuns would be getting very tipsy. I didn't even know nuns were allowed to drink.
0: Oh, it's amazing what goes on behind closed doors, that's for sure. Now, you've mentioned that it shaped who you are today, being a nun. How, how so? Um, I think I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about human nature,
1: a lot about other people. I realised that I've got a really, really strong value set to the point where I could challenge the nuns on their values and the way they were living and they didn't like it. Like one of the younger ones that had entered after me, who I'm still friends with today, actually, she got, she got really drunk. Her bunny rabbit had died and she got really, really drunk. So I was, you know, taking her upstairs and looking after her. And I basically said, you know, this should not be happening in a convent. Hello people. And it's a case of you say anything to anyone and we're going to make your life really, really miserable. It's like, That's no way to behave. And when I told them that I wanted to leave, it's like, well, you're leaving over our you know, over my dead body. how does that work? They just didn't live the way they were professing to live. They weren't living out those values. And I get that we're humans and human nature is weak and no one is perfect. But I guess that idealism of youth, that idealism, I think we should be striving towards that. And that's what they profess the way they profess to live. These people were older and wiser and perhaps should have been living that way so
0: if you weren't making any income and you were there for five years what happened when you left did you did you have any money did you have any savings like how did you financially go from being there and obviously you didn't have a lot of costs or any I assume did you have any costs no, you while you're in the conflict no, anything that you
1: needed like your basics like you know your food or you know shampoo to wash your hair, you'd have, you wouldn't have anything beyond the basics. So once I made my vows, I was allowed to get a job. I was encouraged to get a job. So I started working as a manager of a rehab service. 100% of my paycheck went to the nuns. That's the way it worked. It all got pulled in. I was Pretty disillusioned and very upset, and I guess maybe working, you start to see things again from a different perspective. So, I remember one particular Sunday afternoon that the mother superior had taken the other young nun out, and she said to me, What are you going to do this afternoon? And I said, Oh, probably. Have a sleep. She goes. I'll sleep your whole life away. But I was exhausted. They had me working so hard, and I wasn't getting eight hours sleep a night. I was tired. You know. Did you ever get days off, or was it like were you on a sort of schedule? Like Sunday was your day off. Sunday's the day of rest, but you would still have to do breakfast, do lunch, do dishes, do prayers. The bit of time that you might have after lunch. Like you'd go to mass on a Sunday morning and come home and prepare lunch. You'd have lunch. You'd have prayers. You'd get a couple of hours on a Sunday afternoon. Basically, that's it for the whole week. So I was tired. I wanted to sleep. And um, she goes, "Oh, sleep your sleep your life away." Like she was criticizing me. And it's just, oh, "I'm tired. I'm tired." And in the end, I was like, "Whatever." And I think that was a trigger for me. And I've never really been one to write stuff down. So she went off, and I was. I was actually feeling really quite angry, and of course, you can't talk to anyone. There's no phone, no people around. So I actually wrote and I wrote a letter to the Mother General, who was based in Rome at the time. And I just let it all out all of my issues within the convent. I just put it all on paper. And so when the Mother Superior came home and she said, What did you do? I said, I had a sleep. And she goes, Did you do anything else? I said, Yes, I wrote a letter to Mother General, and she goes, and what are you going to do with it? I said, I don't know, probably just tear it up. She goes, I order you by your vow of holy obedience to fax that through to Mother General. (laughs) You can see by the look on your face there. So I faxed it through to Mother General, and under the Mm convent law, the Mother Superior isn't allowed to know of any of the communication. Like I didn't consent, so the Mother General couldn't breach my confidentiality that is confidential like you just don't do that within less than a week I was transferred to America and the mother superior kept saying to me I don't know what was in that letter that you sent to mother general I'm like "Mm," and you never will anyway so I got transferred to America um stayed in a little place called Castleton on Hudson which is in upstate New York about 20 minutes south of Albany the capital and I had a lovely time things were definitely much more pleasant over there and you know maybe some of that's the honeymoon phase because you go in meeting all these new people and you're in a different country and but it was a it was a lovely experience I enjoyed my time there I had nearly five months there but I soon realized that as much as I was happy there I couldn't stay there forever and there's no way I was coming back to the convent in Australia and even halfway around the world all my troubles were following me so like the mother superior from Australia would ring and speak to me and then my parents would speak to me and they're saying why were you rude to the mother superior and why wouldn't you there were all these games and manipulation going on and I wasn't saying anything to my parents and I wasn't really saying anything to the mother superior like I would be polite to them but not openly sharing like I am with you and I guess they probably sensed that and realized there was something not quite right but it's just like I just can't do this anymore so yeah. I was getting it from both sides even though I was halfway around the world and. In the end, I basically just said, look, I just I, I, just can't renew my vows. I'm not going to renew my vows. So um, I didn't leave with any shame or anything. I'd stuck to my commitment. Was there any pushback to that? From Australia there was, from the Mother Superior and from my parents there were. Um, and my parents were like, oh, if it's not this convent, try a different convent. It's like saying, well, if it's not that man, try a different man. Like you don't just go from one relationship to the next to the next. So Was it a difficult decision for you to leave? Oh, it was. It was. It was really, really scary, really scary because I knew I had no social support network. I had no friends. I had no financial means. I had nothing. And I'd still have to go back to my parents in order to springboard to something. That was scary. That was really, really scary. But the alternate, like I could tell it was really impacting my mental health and, you know, get to the point where you just don't want to live anymore and it's like, well, that's not okay.
0: Do you think you were depressed there?
1: What you call situational depression. Like it depression, was a situation yeah. that was just like, mm. I just can't handle this. And well, for me, you get to the point where it's a case of you've got two choices. You fight your way out of it or you totally give up. And I'm a fighter. And I think, you know what? No, not that's not going to keep me down. I'm just going to fight my way out of this. And that's just what I do.
0: Was being in the convent for you better than living with your parents? Oh, definitely. Had more freedom. Did you feel safe there at all?
1: Yeah, I did feel safe. The emotional abuse wasn't wasn't as great as it was at home. So I think it's all been part of my journey um, and it's slowly helped me step out of the situation with my parents. It was almost like a stepping stone.
0: So when you left, you've gone... Back home yep. to, to live with your parents? Yep, went back home to live with my parents.
1: Thankfully, they offered me a job straight away where I'd been working as a nun. They liked me there and they needed someone. So they said as soon as they knew I was back in town, I reached out to, to them because obviously I would have needed a referee. Um, and they said, "I'll oh, come work.
0: So for you them. Weren't, weren't a nun, you were working for them as staff? yes. That's correct. Um, I was managing
1: the rehab service for, is a Commonwealth Day Therapy Centre. So looking after OTs, therapy assistants, physio, podiatry, fairly senior position, which for your first position out, but I think I just had those natural leadership abilities. Um, The good thing about that is it gave me some financial means and I started to connect with people You know, I'd go to work, still come home every day to be with my parents, but um, I only stayed with my parents for about three months. That gave me enough money to scrape together to get a car, get a few clothes, and get myself out. Yeah. But in that time, I met the boy's dad. And in a lot of ways, looking back, I was always going to be taken by the first man that said, you know, he loved me and he was similar age to me. He was quite attractive. He himself was becoming a Lutheran pastor, so we had that religious connection. How did you meet? At work. He was working in the in the nursing home while he was studying. So I thought it was a beautiful love story and I'd
0: get my happy ever after. So you've met your first husband mm-hmm. at, at this stage and you were age 26, 27? I was 24. I left the convent
1: early January in 1996, and I met him, I think we started going out in the March, so I hadn't even been out for a couple of months before we met, and we got married the next January. I hadn't even been out for 12 months.
0: Well, as they say, act in haste, repent at leisure. (laughs) Initially, look, you obviously hadn't had a relationship prior to that, was that... Boosting to your self-esteem, having this man who was interested in you and obviously, you know, good-looking, like how how was that to be in that sort of love bubble for you initially?
1: Hugely, hugely. It was everything you'd ever hoped and dreamed of, someone who would, you know, look after you, someone who loved and cherished you, someone you had fun with. I felt like I was finally living life and, you know, things had turned around. So it was a really good time. Then we got married and then he had a bit of a breakdown And he'd left the um, seminary that he was studying at and there were big life changes. And then that put a lot of financial pressure onto things and it was only me working and everything became all about him. It was no longer about me. It wasn't an equal relationship. In a lot of ways, I'd almost become like his mother. I did all the cooking, cleaning, washing, ironing and supported him as paying all the bills. But, you know, I stuck to my you know, my Catholic wedding vows and for better or worse, sickness and in health till death do us part. We waited a while before we had children because we just weren't in a financial position to do so. And I can't say that I'd that because otherwise I wouldn't have my three gorgeous boys that I've got today.
0: How long had you been married before you had your first son?
1: I think we were married for about five years before we conceived and six years when Alex was born.
0: Do you think that you getting married, did your parents like your ex-husband? Were they happy with your choice? How did they feel about it? Oh, they it? didn't come to the
1: wedding because we ended up getting married in a Lutheran church, so they didn't come yeah. to the wedding. My dad stood outside the church and said to us afterwards, oh, well, you can come home now, I guess. I can't
0: stop this. So so they weren't happy about that. <laughs> so probably the only time they were happy with you in your whole life is when you were a nun, basically. Yeah,
1: probably. Although that said, the boy's dad became a Catholic at one stage. Um, And when he became a Catholic, then he was a lot more accepted. And I used to pay my parents to look after my children when they were little because I wanted to put Alex into childcare. And my parents are like, you can't do that. Like, it's your job as a mother to look after your children. And I'm like, well, I have to work. So um, either you look after them or I'm putting them in childcare kind of thing. So They used to come and look after them. Um, So the relationship did improve. My dad is a bit of a handyman, so he'd do lots of odd jobs around the house. I'd always make sure that, you know, I fed them, financially compensated them. They were on a pension, so I always looked after them in that regard. And I thought, well, you know, maybe they can have a better relationship with my children because I've always been one for family. But as soon as the marriage ended or broke up, That was it. The whole wheels fell off again because you just don't do that kind of thing. And they were trying to control. And it's like, well, I have no respect for an institution that would think it's okay to stay in a relationship that's really, really dysfunctional. Quite ironically, it was just after my grandmother had passed away and I'd become really close to her. And one of the first things my mum had said after she passed away is, well, she never ever stood up for us. She never protected us children, like from. Hurt my mum's dad from her husband and I just thought, wow, you never did that for me and yet you're the first one to complain about your own mother and yet you didn't do that for me and that resonated with me and it's like, no, I need to do that for my children. That's what I need to do. I need to step up, you know. My children are way more important than my marriage.
0: At what point in your life, Helen, did you appreciate or register or even want to acknowledge that you'd had a narcissistic family, particularly your father, you'd been sort of controlled when you're in the convent and then you had married a man that also had similar behaviours. At what point did we did you realise that during your marriage or did you realise after your marriage? When did you realise and go, hang on, there's a there's a common theme here through my whole life.
1: I've probably only realised that in the last six months. And I know that might make me sound really, really stupid. But I always think that people think like I think. And that was the biggest mistake I made. People don't think like I think. People think in other ways. So the lesson I should have learned, even with the boy's dad, I stopped putting effort into the relationship. It fell apart within like two weeks. But for three days, he worked really, really hard. He didn't yell at the kids. He did washing. He did some ironing. And he did some cooking. And I was so angry. I was so pissed off like you're capable of doing this but you've chosen not to and all he was trying to do was manipulate me and I could see through it then so there's no way I was going to be sucked back in but he acknowledged that you know he would just let me do it but that's the way in which he controlled me there was a lot of that passive aggressive stuff but even then I still didn't twig and I think the reason that I didn't and I'm trying really hard not to beat myself up is I had lived and grown around narcissists my whole entire life. So that's normal. That is just normal. That's just people and that's who everyone is. But I've now realised it's not normal. They're the minority and I have surrounded myself by around the most beautiful people who are not narcissists and I can now pick them. But you don't recognise it because you don't realise that narcissists are narcissists because that's all you've been surrounded with.
0: Is that what you you mean by I used to think things differently to everybody else you like because that's all you knew you just thought that's how everyone thought is that is that what you mean by that okay, yep. wow it just goes to show until you become aware of how it can just take over your whole life or how it can just carry through your whole life those beliefs and that manipulation and Uh, I guess your level of self-worth obviously has a lot to do, and that's not your fault, but your level of self-worth, you didn't know any better for such a long time until, you know, you're 50. Yep,
1: and it's that intermittent reinforcement and you're thirsting for love and affection from, from, from someone, from anyone for that connection. That's what we do as human and you get it sometimes and then it gets eroded away. It's that love bombing and it gets eroded away. It's that manipulation and that's what I grew up with and that's what I've had in relationships um and it's so dysfunctional and it's so unhealthy but if that's all you've ever known that's your normal frame of reference that's that's normal in the world like that's that's just the people and the way they
0: are i've been wondering as you've been speaking about you know raising your sons as a single mom and obviously i think to a degree i think we 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 do the best we can with what we know mm-hmm and some some people just don't know enough or just don't have that self awareness or understanding of how, how their actions and their behaviors are hurting other people. But I think I think we all do the best we can with what we know. Mm. Do you catch yourself out as a parent now trying to do the complete opposite to what you had as a child? Or where do you find that balance in being a single mum? Yeah, that's a good question. Um
1: and I was determined not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So I was very much about mindful parenting and how am I going to do this? Rather and and learning to follow your instincts. I think instinctually, I was very much like the attachment parent, that strong attachment with my children. And I figure my the most important thing is to give your children unconditional love. If they've always got that love, no matter what mistakes my boys have made and I might be really angry or really disappointed with them, I've always made sure that they felt loved. And I did that because of the trauma that I experienced. But I think in doing that, it strengthened the bond and the relationship for the fact that they could tell me anything, anything at all. If it went down, they could tell me and their friends felt like they could tell me as well and share that. And then I was really conscious to not control my children, but I wanted them to have the really strong values that I have because I think that's really what was so important to me. It's, it's part of who I am. But I decided to take a real educative approach. So rather than control them and say, no, you can't do this and no, you can't do that, it was a case of, well, if you did this, have you thought about those implications? And if you did it that way, what would that look like? And try to teach them the reasoning process so that they could learn that skill for themselves down the track.
0: How have you healed from your very traumatic childhood and upbringing? How, how has that played out for you in terms of healing yourself?
1: I have done different bouts throughout the years and seen various counsellors um, and still reach out. I think mental health is really, really important and I think there's still a lot of stigma around that. but. Um, I'm still a work in progress, in all honesty. I'm still learning a lot about myself, about human nature, and I'm just using that as, as the building blocks by which to just keep, you know, rising and soaring and bringing others with me, lifting others along with me. And I think by sharing my story even with you, hopefully that will help others see that you can get past this, you can still achieve great things, you can you can move forwards no matter what's happened to you. You've got a choice, you can either become Really bitter, or you can choose to work on yourself and heal yourself and um, help others in the process. And that's what I've chosen to do. I think um, if you become bitter, you're just poisoning yourself and it's not going to help anyone. And we've only ever got one life, and it's what you make of it it's what you give to others.
0: It's an amazing outlook to have after all you've been through. Tell me. Are you still involved? Are you still a practicing Catholic or have you completely removed religion from your life or what's that look like for you? The
1: lesson that I learned was that religion is man-made, that faith is a gift from God and it's what's in your heart and how you live your life that really matters. And that's what I've focused on. So yeah, it's what's in your heart, how you live your life, how you treat others. And having grown up, you know, being told I was fat and ugly forever and you 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 never believe that, I think I've worked all the more harder to have some beauty shine from the inside.
0: How does your life look in the next 10 years? Do you ever think about that? Are you a planner? Are you a dreamer? Or do you just take it day by day? Or, you know, you've obviously set up a really successful business. Do you have some big goals to do anything with that? Or even for yourself personally?
1: Yeah, I do. I'm sort of a bit at a crossroads. Two years time, my youngest will be 18. So in that regard, my job is done. Not that your job's ever done with your children, but once you get them to adulthood, I think that's a big milestone. I'm not finished doing what I'm doing with the business. It's my goal to be a national franchise. So I branched into um, WA and New South Wales this year. I'm still looking for Victoria, still looking to grow that. Like I said, not numbers for numbers sake, but I've realized that the more OTs we have together in one particular area, it strengthens the brand, it strengthens the resources, the cover that we have for each other and can help everyone achieve their own goals because they have more selection in terms of the kinds of clients they're seeing. So I'm really looking to keep consolidating and building on the foundations that I've laid over the last few years. And personally, I would like to travel the world. I'm all about making memories. It's not about things. It's not about material things for me. It's about relationships with others. It's about self-development and it's about
0: exploring the world. Amazing. I think you deserve that, definitely. You've clearly worked very hard to get to where you are. And I think on a personal note, Helen, I just, I really hope that one day, you meet someone and you have someone in your life and I know you've got your three great sons, but I, I for you, I, I hope you meet a partner that really truly sees what a magnificent and beautiful person you are. I I really hope that for you. You know, I, I you know, people go, oh you're fifty. Like life life's sort of done. Well you know life's just starting for you, I think. And I think that you've, you've done the hard yards, you've been through so much trauma and and so much adversity and you're here and I just hope that the next half century of your life is the time where you truly flourish and life is everything you could have ever hoped for.
1: I I already feel like I'm the luckiest girl in the world. I really do. I mean, I lived like no one would ever dream of living but now I feel like I am living the dream because I am the most lucky person in that I get to choose who I spend time with each and every day. And I have surrounded myself with the most beautiful people, including my boys, my franchisees, my employees, my friends. And the world is a, is a good place. And I think together we can do so much to help others. I'm truly blessed. I'm not bitter at all. It is what it is. And I wouldn't be the person I am today without those experiences. It's led me along this journey to this place. And um, yeah, I'm happy. I'm
0: really happy. Helen Waite, thank you so very much for your time, your candidness, and just sharing your incredible story. I, I, I'm actually, it's a lot to take in as someone listening to it for the first time, but it is just truly so inspiring. And You are just one hell of an amazing human. So thank you for the honor of being able to share your story here on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Elena. Thanks for tuning in. In the aim of serving up interesting and enjoyable content, for the meantime, I've decided to remove all the ads. Creating this podcast is a true labor of love as it's owned and produced independently not with a big network like most of the successful shows, and there's currently no financial gain in producing it. Each episode can take around 20 hours of prep work before it's released, and I pay an audio editor a substantial fee to edit each episode. Therefore, if you love this free content, I would be super appreciative if you could leave a five-star review for the show. Maybe you or someone you know has a great story that's worth sharing. If you do, please get in touch via hello at edwinarobertson.com. Coming up on episode 12, I share an anonymous story about heartbreak and true forgiveness. For anyone who's ever suffered huge betrayal, particularly in a relationship, this story is for you. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss when it drops next week.